my new podcast here's the thing though i'm saliha your host and i'm here with my producer editor person mitch hello before we begin we'd like to acknowledge the darug and kuringai people who are traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today we'd like to pay our respects to all first nations people past present and future and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded just a little bit about myself before we get into it all. I'm 21. I'm a journalist. I work for Firefly Media, which is like a little youth company. I do a lot of social commentary around feminism, race and capitalism. You may know me from my Bachelor commentary. I talked a lot about the latest season of The Bachelor and how racist I thought it was. Uh, and then I stopped watching because it was just so bad that I couldn't keep going. But you can read all about it on Mamma Mia. If you're interested, Mitch, tell me a little bit about yourself. Hey, yo, I'm uh, 21, currently a student of media studies, film studies and linguistics. And um, in the past year, I've been really interested in a lot of critical theory, which I'm interested in bringing to this project here. As producer, I will be lurking in the background, unseen, unheard, but facilitating discussion and chipping in uh, when I have something to say. Don't worry, though. He won't colonize this podcast. I will be. The main speaker. <laughs> <laughs> um, this podcast is essentially a space for us to approach what's happening in the world and our lives from a critical lens, mostly focusing on the racial, feminist, and class elements of pop culture and news politics. We're not discriminating between petty drama and more like highbrow politics because they all point back to the same systematic issues that plague our society, and I think it's really important that we understand that. Yeah, we're not really here to look at both sides of an issue. And I think it's important right now to declare where we stand. We're both strictly anti-capitalist and aiming to discuss everything through the lens of intersectional, radical leftist politics. We'll be focusing on decolonizing our minds and approaches to the world and being critical of the white supremacy that underscores all of society. Speaking of white supremacy, mm-hmm. <laughs> today we talk a little bit about that. Today we're mostly going to be talking about white feminism however that ties in a lot to white supremacy and while I wish we had a lot more time to go a lot more in depth about this issue we kind of more just talk about I guess the most topical elements of white feminism that have kind of been in discourse in the last couple of weeks but in the future we'll definitely go more in depth about this topic in more podcast episodes uh, and zero in some more of it but today it's more just like an overview just for you to get like the vibe of what we're talking about and our, I guess, stance on white feminism versus intersectional feminism. Sweet. Let's get started. I imagine a lot of you that are listening right now identify as some form of feminist. The face of modern day feminism is often considered to have begun with the birth of suffragettes, voting rights, property rights, financial independence, sexual liberation, women's safety, abortion rights, bodily autonomy, the wage gap. Like these are all very, I guess, mainstream uh, examples of issues in modern day feminism. Here's the thing though. (laughs) A lot of modern day feminism doesn't actually include the struggle and various liberation efforts of women of colour. 
Instead, it focuses on the milestones and barriers broken by white women specifically. For example, uh, the commonly used phrase women earning 70 cents to a man's dollar. I'm sure everybody's heard that one from America for the wage gap. It's actually inaccurate um, because not all women earn 70 cents to the white man's dollar. And I'm going to say the white man because it is the white man's dollar. Asian women earn less than white women and then Latina and black women earn even less than that. But we're talking about, I guess, the most privilege of women, which is white women. And it kind of just erases the struggle of other minorities when it comes to the wage gap. That's just like an example of what I'm talking about when I say that modern day feminism kind of excludes women of color. So this type of feminism is actually just white feminism. So in terms of explaining what white feminism is, I know a lot of you listeners probably already know the term, especially if you exist in the same spaces that I do, but I think it's worth actually discussing it and breaking it down, especially because I imagine some of you are kind of new to the term white feminism or don't fully understand why it's a bad thing. So white feminism is feminism is a liberal rather than a radical brand of feminism. It functions as something that coexists with capitalism rather than opposes it. It's, you know, fundamentally, I guess, I guess against what I believe in as an anti-capitalist because it relies on capitalist functions to be successful. It's based on Western ideals of beauty, gender, success, liberation. It's often actually oppressive and dismissive of ethnic cultures and it demonizes and otherizes women of color who criticize it. White feminism is, it's that toxic kind of feminism that spouts women shouldn't tear down other women because you called out a white woman for being racist. It's this toxic positivity mindset, refusing to be held accountable or actually giving a shit about women of colour because that's seen as something that's at the expense of upholding white women's superior status in society. It doesn't have to be active. Like, I think a lot of people get offended when I accuse somebody of being a white feminist because they think I'm accusing them of being an active white supremacist. And that's not the case. The problem with white feminism or white feminists is that they don't actually realise their position in society. They don't actually realize the privilege that they have and they don't actually realize that they weaponize that privilege against women of color all the time. That's, I guess, part of the problem is the lack of self-awareness around it, right? Like that's why this whole, oh my God, don't criticize me because you're a bad feminist because women should uphold other women. Like this is peak white feminism. It's the idea of this lack of nuance. The fact that women, especially white women, can still oppress other people because there are levels of, I guess, female identity that are more oppressed than others, right? Be it being black, be it being Asian, whatever marginalized group you belong to that isn't a white cis woman, you have less privilege than a white woman and therefore are not afforded, I guess, the same barriers as white women in feminism, right? So white feminism is filled with lots of symbols of progress, but it actually lacks real meaningful work. (laughs) Like you guys will get what I mean when I start to explain it, but It's basically like tokenistic diversity casting. You know, when Disney gives you a black villain and then that's supposed to be representation for black people. It's supposed to be, you know, something that we like aspire to. I don't know. It's just this idea of like doing the absolute bare minimum for people of color and the fact that any representation is supposed to be good representation. It's this complete lack of understanding of what we actually need to be liberated, right? Um, It's, you know, everybody knows like a white feminist that shared a black towel on Instagram for Black Lives Matter, but also doesn't call out their racist friends, is pro-cop and thinks that, you know, oh, well, you know what, 
that person was robbing a grocery store so they deserve to be shot by the police. Like it's that idea of like wanting equality but not actually giving a shit about other races. (sighs) Basically, I guess one that is really close to home and something that I deal with a lot in white feminism is white people that become friends with vocal people of colour like me and then consider themselves woke by proximity. Lauren, if you're listening, thank you for the term work by proximity. I've totally stolen it and we're making it a thing because I think it actually really perfectly encapsulates this phenomenon that happens when you are a vocal person of colour or a vocal anti-racist and you have white feminist friends. Is Because I'm talking about racism, because I'm regularly discussing these issues, I'm kind of idolised or put on a pedestal and these people want to talk about what a great inspiration I am. But then when push comes to shove, nobody is standing up for me when it's their white feminist friends that are like accusing me of things that aren't true, like being aggressive or whatever because of tone policing. Suddenly, we're not all on the same page. Suddenly, we're not all looking for the same thing. That's white feminism, right? It's just these double standards where we're willing to stand up for white women and give them benefit of the doubt, but we're not willing to do that for other minorities. White feminism, it results in this maintenance of the superior white racial group by preserving white women as authorities on oppression and women's rights. You know, they're the people that we go to. They're the ones who lead our movements. Um, It affords, but at the same time, white feminism also affords them as victims in every scenario even ones where they perpetrate racism and especially when they perpetrate racism. Basically, white feminism is pretty fucked. (laughs) It's all about victim blaming and it's all about white women kind of being at the centre of all these issues and women of colour who criticise that are often viewed as or accused of derailing the issue when it's completely the opposite. So if white feminism is fucked and not useful or liberating to anybody except white women, then where do the rest of us feminists stand? Well, this is where intersectional feminism becomes a thing. Just a bit of background on, I guess, intersectional feminism and how it began. The term intersectionality was coined in 1989 by black professor Kimberly Crenshaw. 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 I think it's Crenshaw. (laughs) To describe how race, class, gender and other identities or characteristics intersect and overlap with one another. The term was actually pretty obscure initially and it was mostly just used in like legal proceedings and academic circles, you know, Kimberly being a professor and also a lawyer. Um, And it's actually only recently that the wider feminist movement kind of adopted and co-opted this phrase as intersectional feminism. Basically, intersectional feminism is the acknowledgement and I guess understanding of how different elements of your identity affect the way you experience the world and also the oppression you face. So if I had to give you, I guess, an example of where intersectional feminism comes in, um, if a white woman experiences oppression, it's based on her gender and it can only be based on her gender and perhaps her class financially. Whereas if a black woman faces oppression, she has both those things and then also race. You guys should look up misogyny if you want to, like, I guess, learn about like the specific kind of racism black women face, right? But it's this idea that white women and black women navigate society differently based on the racial hierarchy. Um, And that's actually really important in feminism and liberation because until we liberate black women, we don't liberate any women, right? Like liberation doesn't just end white women's oppression. Um, Intersectional feminism as a movement aims to... I guess uplift the voices of the marginalized by recognizing racial, racial, racial. Who's Rachel? <laughs> racial 
and other hierarchies that describe the different levels of oppression people face, right? It exists in total opposition to white feminism, which only accounts for the barriers that white women face, and it totally ignores the fact that white women are capable of oppressing others because they uphold white supremacy as white women, right? I know people are going to be like, whoa, we're really accusing white feminists of upholding white supremacy. Yes, yes, we are. As I said earlier, I'm not saying it's intentional. I'm not saying they're Nazis. I'm not saying they're actively trying to uphold white supremacy. But it is integral for white women who want to be feminists to understand their role in upholding white supremacy because that way they can stop doing it. You can't solve a problem until you recognize it. And white women really need to like focus on decolonizing the way they view the world, the way they treat people and what their ideas of oppression are because un- until they do that, we're not really going to get anywhere. <laughs> like they can't help us until they understand and come down to our level when it comes to oppression, right? Anyway, so you have to understand that we live on stolen land in a class system created by capitalist colonizers who had it within their best interest to subjugate and otherwise non-white people. And the fact that whiteness is a concept that's definition like constantly shifts and changes. I mean, think about who we consider white now and who was considered white a hundred years ago. It like white supremacy often evolves and grows all the time. And so our activism and our feminism needs to grow and evolve to compete with white supremacy. Anyway, I feel like I'm starting to stray into a whole new topic about white supremacy and its evolution. So I'm just going to come back to white feminism um, and I guess how it upholds white supremacy, like what the actively dangerous elements of white feminism are. Some of the key, I guess you could call it identifiers, markers, habits of white feminists um, is A, the entitlement to emotional labor of women of color, B, white fragility, C, white tears, D, white innocence, and E, tone policing. Uh, <laughs> God, where do I even begin with these things that have been plaguing my life for so long? Um, look, white fragility basically describes the defensiveness white people often feel when you call them out on their racist behavior. There's like this idea of like, oh, the audacity of us calling them racist. You know, us calling them racist is seen as more offensive than them actually being racist. And so this manifests in this like visceral and often vicious response that seeks to undermine, delegitimize and attack the person of color in question to preserve the innocent status of the white offender, right? And so this is where white innocence comes in. It's this idea that intent is more important than impact when it comes to white people being racist accidentally. Um, And that if a white woman is racist, we need to give her the benefit of the doubt. It doesn't count. She deserves a second chance. She deserves our forgiveness. She deserves our kindness. She's just a human being. It's the humanizing of, I guess, white feelings, but also the dehumanizing of like, a woman of color's feelings because, oh, we should just be nice to them and suck it up. You know, it actually moves, I guess, it shifts the responsibility of not being racist from white people to us. Essentially, if we call that racism, we're the problem for being mean, awful, scary, aggressive POC. And, you know, can't we just give white people a break? They're new to this. They're just learning. We can't expect them to understand our position in society. How can we expect them to empathize when it's something they've never experienced? There's all these just 
excuses, right? And that's why innocence, it's constantly looking for excuses to, excuses to defend racism and white people when we never extend that benefit of the doubt to women of colour for literally anything. We're then just put into this awkward position where we either are forced to apologise as women of colour for hurting a white woman's feelings because we called her racist, her distress is more important than our distress in this situation. And if we don't abide by that, we risk being the angry ethnic woman. You know, we risk being a bad role model for the movement. We risk, I guess, I, I mean, I often get accused of being a bad role model for feminism. I often have people say, well, if you were a little nicer, maybe people would care about racism. As if I hold the burden of white people giving a shit about racism and as if my kindness is the only thing that makes them anti-racist. You know, it's about this shifting of burdens, essentially. And it's up to me to be palatable and kind and nice to deserve empathy and sympathy. Whereas white women can be racist and offensive, but they will always deserve that empathy and sympathy, right? I think... You were touching on it before, but I think it's great to talk about the sort of weaponization of white femininity. You were saying it before, but it's become a bit of a truism maybe in the past couple of years that white women uphold white supremacy. And we see that a lot with in America. You know, we see a lot of white women calling the police on black men. And it's this sort of weaponization of their very specific type of femininity, uh, which actually imposes a lot of terror on black men yes. um, and black people across the world. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I think. Thank you for pulling me into that because you're right. That's a tangent that we definitely need to go down. Um, a really good example of white innocence, white fragility, white tears, all of it in one go mm -hmm. is, for example, Amy Cooper, mm -hmm. who called the police on a black man in a park. He was bird watching, and I think he told her to put her dog in a leash because, uh, in in it was in Central Park, wasn't it? I believe so. Yeah. Um. You're not allowed to have dogs free. And so her dog was free and he was like, can you please put your dog on a leash? Because, you know, he's bird watching and blah, blah, blah. And she just like freaked out. There's a video of it online. You can find it. And she, she calls the police and puts on all these fake tears and cries about how this black man is threatening her and she's unsafe. And like, this is how black men die. Like, this kills black men. There are so many videos online of white women doing this. It is not a new phenomenon. And it's white women... Clearly, they know their place in society. Clearly, they understand that they will be afforded sympathy and protection at the expense of people of color. They know it. A lot of white women know it and they use it and they weaponize it. And I feel like that's a really good example of what I'm trying to talk about and how it puts us in this awkward position of trying not to be threatening all the time. And if we are labeled threatening because we are assertive or stand up for ourselves and decide to stop taking racist shit, we become violent and in need of subjugation like black men that get attacked by police for, you know, existing. Anyway, so now I'm just heated. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just heated. Now I want to start some shit. Okay, I'm going to go back to what I was talking about with white fragility and white tears because I want to mention Ruby Hamad and her really, really incredible book. It's like an anti-white feminist Bible. And I feel like if you really want to decolonize your feminism and if you really want to understand the role of white women and how they often unintentionally but always subjugate women of colour, you need to read her book. It's called White Tears, Brown Scars. I reckon it'll be a little bit confronting for some white people, but for me, it was like the most cathartic read ever because I was reading it and I was just like, oh my God, she gets me. She understands me. Like I am having my experiences explained and articulated to me in a way that I've never seen before. And it was so validating. So if you're a white person listening to this and you're feeling a bit defensive and a bit fragile and a bit attacked, don't be. This is a learning experience for you. 
you need to understand your position in society and how it affects us and how it makes us feel. And you should read White Tears, Brown Scars. Anyway, I was originally going to talk about tone policing. So I'm just going to, you know, very... Yes, we'll bring it back to that. I feel like I... (laughs) I enraged you a bit by veering the conversation in that direction. No, Anyways. I think it's good because I think <laughs> I think it's why it's all that it's all those issues that white women often do realized, and I think it's important maybe to contextualize and realize these things because a lot of white women are going to listen to this podcast and feel attacked and feel upset by it. But it's like no, Amy Cooper has had like a prestigious place in a company and often was like seen as you know I guess a successful person. We didn't view her as a racist until this happened. And this is my point, is racism just comes out all the time. There are white women who are out here living normal lives who we don't view as racist. But actually, a lot of their behavior is racist. It is. And we need to be, we need to start like calling it out as racist and recognizing how damaging it is. There are probably a lot of habits that a lot of you white women listening have that are actually really damaging to people of color that you don't realize. And it's really important for you to engage with us, listen to us talk, consume our articles, read about us, read books about our experiences. That's the only way you're going to understand because you don't understand race. You fundamentally can't as white people. Exactly. And this is what we're talking about when we discuss the big picture of intersectionality, that the fact that there is a link between specific types of white femininity and black people being killed in parts of the world. Um, and the weaponization, it's not just these separate issues, but they all intersect in these extremely problematic ways. Yeah, and you might think things like tone policing or white tees are like harmless stuff that you see in Facebook groups, but they're not because they manifest in white women throwing tangents to cops and getting black men murdered. Mm-hmm. Like there is a very clear linear progression. And you need to catch yourself right at the beginning when you tone police people on Facebook because you don't want to be one of those white women who ends up causing the death of a black man. Because you know what? I know a lot of them are bluffing. I'm sure a lot of them don't accident like they don't actually intend to get this guy murdered, but it happens, and that's a direct result of their naivety and their privilege. And we just we can't be doing this shit anymore. Like, there's no excuse to not be educated anymore. It's 2020. There's no excuse. Black Lives Matter has been going on since like 2012 or something. You know, it's not a new movement. George Floyd is not a new movement, and it's about time that a lot of white feminists really started like take a moment to actually learn about racism and the intersections of their feminism and racism and the history of white feminism and racism before i even i know i said i'm gonna talk about tone policing but i'm going down another tangent like with you know the right to vote right like we often see white suffragettes as like the image of modern day feminism and you know women get the right to vote in whatever year i don't even know what year it is to be honest i don't really care because that was the year white women got to vote Black women got to vote a lot later than white women, okay? I mean, in Australia, First Nations people weren't able to vote until far, far, far after white people. It's just understanding that even, like, your feminist icons, like the suffragettes, were racist. There are many accounts of the suffragettes being actively racist and actively preventing black women from taking a part in feminism or benefiting from feminism. Racism has been an integral part to white feminism since the get-go. And it's really important to understand that and make an effort to stop doing that yourself because you will inevitably, as a white person in a white supremacist society, you will inevitably be racist. The point here is for you to understand that and work on not being racist, okay? I don't expect perfection from white people. I actually don't. But I expect you guys, when pulled up, to be able to be like, oh shit, I am so sorry. I didn't realize that was racist. I will stop doing that now. Don't argue with us. 
Don't tell us we're aggressive or wrong or bullies for calling you out. Just fucking listen, for God's sake. Like, I just feel like it's not that hard. It's really not that hard to understand that people of colour will understand racism better than you. And you should listen to them. I feel like that's not a hard concept to get. But here I am having to talk about this because actually every single day in my Instagram DMs, I'm having white women being like, why do you get to talk about this? How come you're an authority figure on this? Why do you think you're more important than white women? I'm like, it's not about importance. It's about the fact that I know what the fuck I'm talking about and you don't. (laughs) And it's plain as day. I'm not out here being an authority on LGBT issues because I'm a straight cis person. I don't have authority on those issues. I haven't experienced oppression. I'm not about to start podcasts talking about gay liberation. You know what I mean? It's not my place to be an authority there. But when we talk about race, it is my place. And I will talk about it. And you won't. (laughs) The end. Anyway, moving on. (sighs) I'm so heated. This gets me so heated. Um... Anyway, back to tone placing. I can't believe it's taking me so long to talk about this. We'll get there. <laughs> there's, just, there's a lot. There's a, this is just such a vast issue. We can't cover it in what We would need like a podcast series to actually properly break down white feminism. But for now, we're just doing the basics, okay? So back to tone policing. <laughs> tone policing is when somebody, usually white women, lol, uh, interacts with a person of a marginalized group and then they get a response that they don't like and then they criticize that person's tone and attack their way, the way they communicate rather than the message behind what they're actually saying. They basically derail the entire discussion to victimize themselves and call the marginalized person a bully or aggressive or whatever in this effort to delegitimize that person's emotions and undermine their entire argument, right? So it's about just ignoring, for example, what a woman of color is saying and just attacking her because she didn't say it nice enough, right? So, for example, (laughs) I have a vast, vast, vast resume of experience when it comes to tone policing. I feel like anyone who follows me on social media knows that I probably talk about tone policing like literally every day because it happens to me literally every day. Um, There are so many examples. Probably like the most potent one uh, was recently in a thread in the It's A Lot podcast group by Abby Chatfield, which I don't think is functional any longer, but Mm. at the time was pretty wild lots of white feminists running around amok in there um but just a few weeks ago two black teenage girls were doxxed by the media uh for traveling while they had coronavirus i wrote an article on this it's on my five white author profile if anybody wants to check it out which is in the link in my bio on instagram uh but basically they were just like huge racist double standards because there are plenty of people plenty of white people who have done this and not one them has been named or in the media at all. But when it was two teenage black girls, they were named, the images were out, they were doxxed, they had to be put into protective custody in the hospital because they were getting death threat. It was all really, really fucked up. And this is the kind of shit that gets white that gets black women lynched. Like seriously, it was genuinely a danger to their lives. Anyway, I shared my article into a group and was talking about the racist double standards around media reporting because when it's a black perpetrator they're demonized and they're fucking docs. Like, do we not understand the seriousness of that? Their medical privacy was violated. I'm pretty sure that's like actually really unethical and potentially illegal journalism. Um, it's very serious. Um, so I was talking about that and just like, just, yeah, just like the racial implications of that and just how it's just straight up racist. Like it's just straight up an indictment of Australian media and a white woman comment in like the breadth of like, there were so many insightful interesting comments on there we were having like really great multi-layered discussions on racism in the media and a white woman commented on it just saying can can you please explain to me what doxing is 
And I replied, oh, somebody else like sent her a screenshot of Google. And I replied being like, hey guys, just please remember to use Google. Because, you know, like, I don't have time to be sitting here answering every fucking white person's question to explain a word that's in the dictionary. Right? It's a wonderful resource. Google is. <laughs> it's very, it's fantastic. Super accessible. Yeah. Sis, Google it. Like, you, it's there for you. It's there for a reason. But anyway, me saying that just caused like this huge shitstorm, and everybody was like, it would take you five minutes to explain it to her. Why are you being so nasty? Why can't you just sit here explaining this to her? And I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? It took her longer to type up that question than it would have to just type it in Google. It's literally like just above on the browser. Just move your cursor up maybe <laughs> a couple of centimeters and then type the same question in. You'll get a much faster response as well. I promise. Yeah. And like, a white woman before me responded with a screenshot of Google, right? Which is just as passive aggressive as my comment. But I was the one that was like totally demonized. And, and this like turned into like an issue. There were like other posts about it. It was fucked, right? And it was just like this crazy, like, in, first of all, entitlement to my labor, which is what I spoke about earlier, right? The fact that she was entitled to my explanation to this word. If I responded to every white woman that asked me a dumb fucking question like that, I'd be on my laptop all day. Okay, why is one person entitled to my... If you are entitled to my labor, then everybody is. I don't have time for that. I get paid to do this shit. I'm a journalist. It's my job to explain things. I'm not doing it for free for some random racist woman on Facebook, okay, who's going to then gaslight me and treat me like shit afterwards. Like, thank God I didn't explain it to her because she's clearly awful, right? But it's just like this entitlement and this idea that because I didn't define a word for, for her in this thread where we were having far more complex discussions... I'm the bad guy and she's just innocent and trying to be educated. You know, why am I alienating white people? You know what? This is why white people are racist, Saliha. It's because you're a horrible bitch who's aggressive to them. Like that is what, that's what people say. People will say to me, if you weren't so aggressive and horrible, more white people would care about racism because, you know, clearly racism is my fault for being a bitch. Anyway, that's tone policing for you. It's this idea that like, if you don't immediately pander to white people and you aren't as palatable to them as possible, then you're just, nothing you say matters, right? Like, since I have a degree and I like write about this as my job, I'm literally a journalist. If you don't think my writing is important because I was mean to you, then I don't know what to tell you because people are paying me to write. I'm not about to like sit here worrying about your opinion, but this is the thing. This is how they try and silence you. It's, and like, honestly, I was getting trolls for like a week. In my DMs calling me a bully. You bullied that poor woman. All she wanted to do was be educated. And it's like, yeah, I know. And I get it. But if she really cared about being educated, she would have Googled it. Or she would have replied with being like, oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry. You know, I should have just Googled it. But instead, she went on and on and on. And it developed you know, this disgusting, like, mess. Comments were turned off. It was just like a nightmare. Literally all because I said, hey, Google exists. Please try your best to use it. And it's not even like the term wasn't defined to her. It was by the person above me. So, yeah. So, like, tone policing happens all the time. It happened to a friend of mine yesterday because there was a post in another group that used my work without crediting in it. She, sorry, crediting it. She commented being like, hey, this is Salia's work. You should credit her. And apparently because she was blunt. I'm going to say blunt because people people mistake assertiveness for blunt rudeness. She was just, like, being normal. <laughs> um, people were like completely ignoring the issue of crediting me, didn't actually comment on that part of her message at all and were just like, you could be nicer about it. 
and why are you giving attitude and you're being hostile you're being aggressive we can't talk to you about this if you're going to be that way and like completely refusing to engage with the fact that this isn't about her attitude this is about the fact that I wasn't credited for something that I wrote you know like it's just this idea of like trying to ignore racist or problematic behavior by just focusing on somebody's tone it's very toxic look and it does happen to people who aren't people of color obviously it happens to a lot of people but by far and large it's mostly women of color that are victim to tone policing and it's almost always at the hands of white women always so it's like really passive aggressive behavior so obviously i spent this whole podcast talking shit about white feminists which leads to the question do white women have a place in intersectional feminism yes but also no it depends Yes, white women can be amazing allies and can exist in intersectional spaces. Y'all are welcome to be there. There are plenty of white women who are intersectional feminists and leverage their privilege to help uplift, platform and protect women of colour. My white allies are wonderful. They often stand up for me in spaces that I can't really stand up for myself because I'm just going to be condemned as an aggressive, bullying bitch. Whereas they can say the same shit and be applauded as brave and strong. And they know that until they'll do me a solid and they'll comment stuff that I won't comment. And that's great. That's helping me. That's leveraging privilege to protect me from criticism while also getting a point across. I love that. Those white feminists, y'all are welcome. If you're a white woman who is an intersectional feminist like that, you're fine. We're cool. However, white women have no business holding monopoly over intersectional spaces. You have no business controlling intersectional discourse or placing yourselves as authorities on this subject. LGBT status, neurodivergency, and disability, that doesn't negate from whiteness and white privilege. And being all these groups doesn't give you a free pass to oppress police or silence us, or give you any authority to speak for us as ethnically marginalized groups. Basically, white feminists do not have the right to control intersectional spaces just because they fit into other marginalized identities. The concept of intersectionality, as I explained earlier, in many, many tangents, was created by a black woman. When white feminists seize control of intersectional spaces and discourse, they're actually co-opting intersectionality for their own gain, ego, and just this desperation to be an authority of the oppressed. It just stems from white feminism and the centering of white female struggle. You all need to understand that you're not the center of everything and you need to be able to back down. And if you can do that, then you can be a good ally. And I'm happy to have you here. Anyway... All this stuff is basically why I just, you know, can't stand white feminism and why I subscribe personally to intersectional feminism. I don't have any interest in white moderated feminism because the preservation of white liberation is always going to come at my detriment because they benefit from white supremacy and I don't. White feminists want a seat at the table and I want to burn that table to the ground. We're fundamentally not on the same page. We don't have the same values. We're not actually fighting for the same goals. A lot of white feminists think getting a female CEO is a sign of progress. To me, that just sounds like, yay, now women can oppress the working class too. Mm-hmm. It's bullshit. It's fundamentally capitalistic. It's colonizer, white supremacist society wanting to be equal to whoever is at the top. If you want to be equal to whoever is at the top, then you want to be equal to an oppressor. And we're not on the same side. And that's obviously not conducive to any like legitimate roles of liberation, right? Because we want to dismantle the way society is right now, not just like move up in it. Anyway, I feel like that's probably a decent, very convoluted example of the, fem- of the feminism that this podcast 
is going to be built on and the shit that we don't tolerate. You know, we are here for intersectional feminism, not white feminism. We don't have room for white tears. We don't have room for tone policing. That's not what we're about. And I wanted to make that really clear in the first episode so that you know from further onwards what we're not going to be tolerating. This is not going to be a space where we afford white women the privileges that they have in every other space of society. So it's intersectional feminism or nothing. Well, that's a wrap. I think this is a great time to talk about our sponsors and say that this episode is sponsored by you, our listeners. Uh, We're super new to the podcast scene and we're not really sure about how to proceed with any sort of monetization just yet. And ideally, we'd like to avoid being slaves to the capitalist machine. So if you learned something from today's episode, please consider donating to our PayPal link, paypal.me forward slash Sleha to support future episodes. The PayPal link is in my Instagram bio, so check it out over there at Saliha Official and give me a follow if you liked today's episode. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or want to add to the discussion, you can email us at podcast at gmail.com and please include your name, pronouns and any other important info. Anyway, bye for now. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.